I'd like to invite you to open your Bible to our reading for Scripture this morning. It is going to be in the book of Malachi, so the easiest way to find this is go to the Matthew and then go back one chapter. Okay, it's the last book in the Old Testament. Um, last week, Alan had you actually take out a physical Bible if you had one and hold it up so you can kind of get the perspective on this. Okay, so here's the New Testament in my Bible and here's the Old Testament in my Bible. There's a big gap in between here between Malachi and Matthew. We're going to talk a little bit about that in a minute, but if you're here at this gap between the Old and New Testament, just flip back for me one page and you'll be at our reading for today. Malachi chapter 1. Malachi 1. And we're going to read verses 1 to 5. And if you don't have a physical Bible, you can look it up on your phone or your iPad or whatever you've got with you. It's great if you can follow along here. Matthew or Malachi 1, 1. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may rebuild, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of God. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. This is God's word, and it's true, and we can rely on it. Okay, so I'd like to try to talk about love for a few minutes, and I'd like to try to get a little bit of a definition, and I had some trouble with this. I'm going to try this one. Love is a deep passionate affection that causes one person to act on behalf of another person because he or she cares for the other person more than they care for themselves. What do you think? Would you buy that as a definition for love? Try it one more time. Love is a deep, passionate affection that causes one person to act on behalf of another person because he or she cares for them more than they care for themselves. Would you buy that? Okay, good, good, easy. You're a good, easy crowd. You, <laughs> did you get fed this week? Was that... <laughs> okay, here's my next question. Have you ever experienced love, being loved? Make a commitment this time, okay? All right. Many people experience this kind of love in their families. We experience it at home. To love and be loved by a spouse or a child or a parent or a sibling, this is a great blessing. And I think many of us got to experience some of that this past week. I heard lots of stories of getting together with families. There's something great about being with your family, isn't it? To be loved and to love is a great gift. What about to love and be loved by a friend? You've got someone that you've been with for a long period of time. You've known them for many years. They're not family. They didn't get stuck with you. They chose you to love and be loved by a family. That's an amazing gift. To love and be loved by a dog. How many of you get to experience this? That is a great gift. I've got to tell you, I've been converted. You know that. To, to love and be loved by a cat. 
No, that doesn't happen. That is not possible. Okay, for many months now here within our congregation, we've been exploring what it means to love and be loved by God and what that looks like. And we've been trying to figure that out and we've discovered on many occasions that to love and be loved by God is revealed in this action that God takes in that no matter how many times we turn our back on God, He continues to pursue us. That God's love is an unrelenting love, an unconditional love, a pursuing love that goes after us and never lets go. God never turns his back on us. And this is the love story that we've been looking at from Genesis to Malachi throughout the entire Old Testament. We've seen many different versions of this story, but the bottom line has always been this. God loves us deeply. And that is an amazing gift to be loved by God. And I don't know about you, but this has been my experience over the past couple months as we've spent time dwelling in the Word, and the Word starts to dwell in us, and it begins to shape us. You know, this dwelling in the Word isn't just some kind of random action. It's an action that actually results in our being shaped, in our being formed as people. So the longer we dwell in the Word, the more it shapes us. And I've been noticing something about my own shaping as I've been dwelling in the Word, and that is this. It feels to me like over the past several months, I have experienced more and more God's love for me. This deep love that has revealed itself in my own life that no matter how many times I've turned my back on God, He has continued to love me. Has anyone here, anyone else here experienced God's love in the past couple months? In dwelling in the Word even? Okay. I've also discovered this, that as that dwelling in the Word shapes me, that the unfamiliar books or the unfamiliar stories actually seem to have been having a little more effect on me than the familiar stories. Sometimes I read a, you know, one of the familiar stories in the Old Testament, and I go, yeah, I know that, and I skim past it. But when I get into unfamiliar territory, it actually forces me to like pay attention, to dwell more deeply. And as I've been dwelling more deeply, the Word dwells in me more deeply, and I've experienced God's love. That happened to me while I was in the book of Malachi. I wasn't really that familiar with Malachi and his story. And as I was dwelling in it this week, I felt a deep experience of God's love, and that started to shape me. So I'd like to try to see if that will work for you in the next few minutes. So Malachi follows a classic prophetic pattern, which one of the commentators I read described as prophetic dispute. And this is how prophetic dispute works. The prophet comes and says something to the people about God, and the people go, nah, I don't believe you. No, that's not it. They argue with the prophet, and in essence, they're arguing with God. They're saying, God, yeah, you said that, but in this case, God says, I love you, and the people say, how have you loved us? They don't trust him. God says, I chose you, and they say to God, did you really choose us? God says to the people, I will defeat your enemies, and the people look around and say, our enemies are not defeated. Are you really going to defeat our enemies? God says, I'm in charge, I rule the world, and the people say, I doubt it. Prophetic dispute. 
Now, one of the beautiful things that has emerged for me in these stories, especially in these minor prophets, these less familiar stories, was that the people like actually are engaged in this argument with God, and then this beautiful thing happens. God doesn't walk away from them. God doesn't turn his back on them. God doesn't say, shut up. God doesn't tell them he's done. God doesn't throw up his hands and say, you people, I'm done with you. God keeps pursuing them. In fact, I started to wonder that even if in the pursuit is God displaying his passion, his passionate love for these people. God keeps pursuing them and entering into the dispute. So if you want to argue with God, God might push back. He's going to keep talking to you, but he's not going to walk away. God says to them in this dispute, when they say, God, do you really love us? Are you really for us? Are you really still in charge? Are you really going to defeat the enemy? God says, well, I haven't gone anywhere. It's you who left. You're the ones who turned your back on me. It's your unfaithfulness, your infidelity. You're he has some kind of harsh words. If you're going to argue with God, you've got to be prepared to hear the truth. He says to them, it's your unfaithfulness that led to this. I haven't gone anywhere. You turned your back on me. And as the dispute escalates, then God begins to warn them. This kind of disobedience, you know, has consequences. And as we heard so beautifully last week um, from Jonah, from Pastor Allen, the consequences is not like revenge. It's not like retribution or punishment. That's not, the, that's not what the consequences are for. The consequences are for discipline designed to make us better, designed to bring us back. Decide to get our attention, decide to woo us back to God's love. I think parents who are here get this. We discipline our kids because we love them, right? If, I, if we saw our kid going out to play in traffic, we would grab him by the arm, we'd yank him out, or we'd yell at him, or we'd swat him to get their attention. We'd do whatever it would take to keep that kid from running out into traffic, right? It's the loving thing to do to let him just go play in traffic is not the loving thing to do. If we saw a blind man headed toward a cliff, we'd warn him. We'd, make a, we'd block him. We'd do anything we could. If we cared, we'd intervene. Many people who are wiser than I have written about this, and they actually say that the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. If I don't care, if I'm completely apathetic, if I have no interest in your well-being whatsoever, that's the opposite of love. Maybe some husbands and wives have found this to be true. If I really want to make my spouse pay, I give them the most painful punishment I know, which is what? The silent treatment. Yeah, I just ignore them. I don't recognize them as a person. I don't even acknowledge their existence. And that can feel a whole lot worse than yelling and arguing because if I'd argue, at least that shows I'm engaged. I care enough to try to solve this. God in the story from Genesis to Malachi is engaged with his people, continually engaged, even if it's an argument, because he loves us. And he never stops loving us. No matter how many times we turn our backs no matter how many times they turn their backs, God is there. In fact, in the middle of this dispute raised in Malachi, God makes a really grand promise to them. 
He says, now I know you guys have been wicked, you've been unfaithful, there's been some infidelity, you haven't cared, you've been much more consumed with your own interests than with my interests, but I'm going to make this promise to you. One day, there's a great day coming, and on that day, I'm going to send you a Messiah, and he's going to save you from everything. One day, he says, everything will be made right. One day, this is coming. This is the promise that he makes. Now get ready, he says. And then nothing. He makes them the promise that one day, something great is going to happen, and then God stops talking. And we have a gap. So if you had your Bible out earlier, you see the gap as uh, one page between Malachi and Matthew. There's one page. But there's a gap between this, and that gap between the old and the new is actually 400 years long. 400 years. God says, one day I'm going to come and there's going to be this special day when I send my Messiah and everything will be set right. And then God stops talking and nothing happens. There's a huge gap. Now, 400 years is a long time. Four centuries. We read about 400 years in the Bible and it doesn't really phase us. It seems like no big deal. But if you think about it this way, 400 years ago would have been 1617. The pilgrims had not yet landed on this continent that came in 1620. Okay? 400 years into the future would be 2417. That'd be 100 years after the original Star Trek, if you're paying attention. Okay? That's way out there. We like to think of our country as being, you know, well-established, but it's only 241 years old, and we can barely comprehend what it was like in the days of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, in the days of the Revolution. We can't, it's so far removed from us, we can't even imagine what that was like, right? We're more prone to think in terms of decades, and that seems like a long time. We mark our life by this decade or that decade. I'm going to give you some things from a decade, and you see if you can tell me which decade it is. First personal computer, first cell phone, who shot JR? Not our JR, but the Dallas JR. <laughs> who shot President Reagan? Challenger Explosion, Pac Man, Game Boy, Rubik's Cube, Cabbage Patch Dolls. What decade am I? The 80s, okay. That's like half a lifetime ago. And that's a long time for us, okay? We're not used to thinking in these long times. Yet the Bible routinely deals with junks of times that are talking about millennium. Certainly centuries, 400 cent, or four centuries, 400 years, is the gap between Malachi and Matthew. And in the meantime, God says nothing. He says, hey, one day something great's going to happen. One day I'm going to send the Messiah. One day it's going to happen. And then and they wait and they wait and they wait. Have you ever been waiting for a really big day? The day you would fall in love? Your wedding day? The birthday of your child or your grandchild? Waiting for the day when the doctor's going to say you're cancer-free? Waiting for the day when someone you love will say I'm sober? Waiting for the day when the addiction will loosen its grip on your soul. There's some big days in our lives, and we have 
a high anticipation for those days. They, we want them to come with some urgency. We can hardly wait for these days. Malachi's message to the people of God was that kind of urgent message. Hey, I know things aren't good right now, but listen, someday there's going to be a special day and everything's going to be better. And then nothing. 400 years of nothing from God but silence. And they have to wait. And then 400 years later, there was a prophet, another prophet named John, and he cleared his throat and he shouted, repent, prepare the way. And he picked up right where Malachi left off and he started talking about this special day and the one who was coming to set all things right. He talked about preparing the way for this Messiah to come, to save God's people, and almost everyone missed the announcement. And then almost everyone missed the Messiah when he came too. It was just overlooked. Everyone missed it. And I couldn't help but wonder if they missed it because they just got tired of waiting. They'd waited long enough. You remember the 70s? Here's some things that maybe help your memory. The Godfather, Star Wars, the Village People YMCA, Pocket Calculators, and Sony Walkmans. The miniseries Roots and Atari and Three Mile Island and President Nixon and Ford and Watergate. Some of you remember that. At the end of Watergate, President Ford made this comment. He said, our long national nightmare is over. I was too young to know what kind of a nightmare it was, but apparently it was a nightmare. The people in Malachi's day were living in a nightmare. Okay? They'd been in exile, remember? First the Babylonians, and then the Babylonians got conquered by the Persians, and then the Persians kind of let them go. Some of them went back, some of them didn't. It had been a nightmare. And now they're hearing this promise from Malachi, hey, there's a a good day coming. Your nightmare is over. Everything's going to be set right. Look forward to this day. It looks like life is going to get better. And then nothing happens. And I'm sure that these people must have ignored Malachi's warnings because Malachi has quite a few warnings if you read through the whole book. And these warnings didn't get a lot of attention as was common for God's people. Oh, it's a crazy prophet guy. Don't listen to him. That kind of thing. But basically his warning was this. Um, Straighten up or else. Kind of like the kind of warning I would get from my dad. Just real simple. Straighten up or else. And we didn't even want to know what the or else was. Malachi warned them, remember how bad it was for the, uh, when the Babylonians were here? That was bad. If you don't straighten up, it's going to get worse than that. Malachi's burning question for them was how they could be holding back from God because God had done so much for them. They had so many reasons to be thankful, but they, were, they took it for granted and they were holding back from God. How can they spend time feathering their own nests and padding their own bank accounts and not giving God his due? And he warned them that said, you know, if you don't get this figured out pretty soon, I might give you some time to figure it out. And then he does. But here's the promise. That great day is coming. And then I will deliver you. But not now. And then silence for a day, a month, a year, 10 years, 100 years. 
400 years. And while they waited, the Babylonians disappeared, the Persians rose and fell, Alexander the Great came and went, the Greeks fall to the Romans, and the Roman Empire becomes the greatest civilization ever. Generations live and die, and every man, woman, and child, and their grandchildren, and their grandchildren, and their grandchildren's grandchildren, they all die, and these promises don't come true. There's a gap. And I can't help but imagine that the people did not do well in this silent treatment from God. This is the kind of treatment that would lead many, maybe most of them, to question, if God's not going to talk to us, does He love us? If God's not going to say anything, is He still in charge? Is He still there? And if God would just speak, if God would just say anything, that would make their day. If God would remind him one more time of that great day coming, if God would remember them one more time that he's their God, that they are his people, if God would remind them one more time that he loves them, wouldn't that be awesome? And one of the first things that happens when we read about the silence being broken in the New Testament is about the great day coming. Listen to this from Luke 1. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, to a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. It gives me goosebumps just to read it. After 400 years of silence, God comes and he says, The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be because no one's heard anything like this for 400 years. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God and you will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. And he will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever and ever and his kingdom will never end. What a great day. Matthew breaks the silence this way. Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. But because Joseph, her husband, was a faithful to the law and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what God had promised through the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's a great day. After 400 years of silence, God comes back to his people and he says, you know what? I'm still with you. I still love you, and I keep my promises. This is what God says. One takeaway from me for all the old uh, dwelling in the Old Testament has been this. Time and time again, I've heard this truth. God loves me, and no matter how many times I turn my back on him, he keeps loving me, 
and God keeps his promises. And this truth has shaped me so that on days when God seems silent, on days when I'm not sure if God's in charge, on days when I don't know what to make of all the situations going on around me, I remember this. God still loves me and he keeps his promises. On days when I have doubt, on days when I give in to temptation, on days when I'm discouraged and depressed, I remember this. God loves me and God keeps his promises. And I know it's true because of this little book, this little message from Malachi the prophet. And I also know it's true because after 400 years of silence, God came back to us and he said this, you know what? I'm still your God. You're still my people. I still love you and I keep my promises. And I think that's what God wanted to say to us today. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, we come before you and I thank you for your word and we thank you for the truth of it and we thank you for your Holy Spirit who takes these truths and applies them to our lives and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.